Hello Hackers, my name is Dominic Norton and I am the podcast host of Hackathon Entertainment, the show where we bring you the story behind every hack. For those new to the show or hackathons in general, a hackathon is a collaborative 48-hour event where participants called hackers come together to solve the world's toughest problems. You'll be surprised, excited and amazed with the solutions people are developing all across the world. If you listened to the show before, you'll be excited to know we're in for another great one. In this episode, I connected with Dr. Hilla Lifshitz Asaf, Assistant Professor at NYU, Faculty Associate at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, and Sarah Leibovitz, Assistant Professor at University of Virginia. We discussed their research on minimal and adaptive coordination, how hackathon projects accelerate innovation without killing it. I hope you enjoy the show. Developers, developers, developers. Developers, developers, developers. Developers, developers, developers. So first of all, I fully agree, Hackathon is such a unique experience, yeah. like people need to talk about it, to story tell, yeah. podcast, you know, like even videotape it, like yeah. we found it really fascinating, by now we are used to it, but yeah. the first few times we were like, whoa, yeah. uh, like the pace of it, uh, the, the good vibe that it has, that yeah. everyone is trying to help each other, and um, so it's really fascinating, so... We both have been doing all those hackathons that uh, I, it sounds like you read uh, some of it. And yeah. uh, we also did like a small, uh, st- smaller study with hackathon organizers where we asked them. That's it. At, and, uh, we did a small animated video on it and it's on the oh, MIT Stone Review. So I can send you that as well. And there we kind of say that we believe that regular managers can also learn some of those practices that hackathon organizers are actually doing because they are enabling a lot of freedom. Yeah. and a lot of autonomy, which is something that everyone today wants, even when they're working you know, yeah. in Silicon Valley company, right? They want yeah. more freedom. They don't want to be told when they're innovating what to do and how. Yeah. But on the other hand, the managers need to report. They have. Yeah. So that's kind of what the paper t- is about. That thing is about balancing. Yeah. And the newest thing we're working on is kind of hackathons remote in a COVID time. So we're mm-hmm. participating in uh, online hackathons uh, to fight COVID, and we're seeing how that's hard and challenging. But the, yeah. the most developed thing that we have to talk about that we are knowledgeable is around uh, the assistive technology hackathons yeah. and what those teams that were able to produce a successful product, what did they do? What was their secret mm-hmm. sauce of the process versus those that didn't? That yeah. seemed really great as well, but unfortunately, it did not lead this. You know, yeah. most hackathons, you know, do not mm-hmm. lead, you know, most teams do not lead to a working product. As yeah. you said, in the end, sometimes you have this void, uh, both emotionally kind of it's exciting and then there is a okay back to Monday back to work or on to regular day and also there is a question of how do we keep it sustained what, what do we do with all this product and all the knowledge that was so I think it's a great question to ask uh, and it's not yet answered yeah there is no system uh, the people that are organizing um, one of the hackathons I can refer I can connect you to them they have an idea and they create groups, working group after the hackathon of people who want to continue those projects. Mm-hmm. 
that's the idea of kind of local and maker spaces in the community yeah. so it kind of continues but i agree with you that the open source is one way that this could help if everything that is done in hackathons would be uploaded to other open source software or hardware then it's much better to be to be scaled to be community yeah. knowledge building because we know that open source one of the beauties of it is that even if one person does one step like the community and other people will build upon it so that's what we are missing i think in the day after the hackathon so our study is mostly about yeah. the hackathon but we are definitely also thinking about you know the day after i think a good place so i'm just looking at my notes a good because there's lots of points we can touch on i think i think a good place to start on would be autonomy and control and this might even touch into some of the research you're currently doing when you're talking about virtual for the longest the workplace has been very uh, dictatorial very intensive for managers managers are looking over employee soldiers and now with covid there's there's a there's distance between the employees and the managers and what what does this mean for innovation what are, have what have been your insights in hackathons in mm-hmm. how to facilitate the, the balance between control and autonomy uh, so we started thinking about um well like you said we were really focused on the process of work and how teams can be successful but we realized that after going to so many hackathons that we really learned a lot about the organizers as well and what we noticed was their way of of allowing the hackathon participants to have this autonomy that they come for. They basically have this self-motivated, I'm going to experiment and do things on my own. And it doesn't do well when they have a lot of control, even within the teams. There's a lot of push and pull I'm sure you've you've experienced. And so the role of the organizers was really that... um, the task of setting the stage for the event to unfold and for the teams to be successful, mm-hmm. but then stepping back and letting the teams work in their un- you know, natural autonomous ways. And so we saw this play out in a number of ways. One would be um, they, they set up all of the knowledge sources that the teams might use. Because what what really wastes a lot of time at hackathons is having to reinvent the wheel mm-hmm. and learn things on the fly. And really what can help them is to tap into existing knowledge resources that can let them leapfrog over some of that arduous, you know, trial and error and just jump straight to the solution. And so we found that by providing mentors just in a very scaffolding way, just sp- sprinkling them around, creating uh, opportunities for sharing uh, problems, basically coming forward with these problems as soon as you have them and connecting them to the, to the right solution, to the right knowledge source, was a really good way for them to create this set stage for knowledge connections, but not to stand over someone's shoulder and say, yeah. okay, you've been working enough, you know, go, go ask the expert. And so we see that in, in companies and organizations that their employees are constantly struggling. Uh, you know, we, uh, I'm not sure, you know, what your, what your day job is. You said you're getting your MBA, so yeah. you'll eventually probably join a company somewhere. But, and, you know, I spend a lot of time in my companies just trying to learn and what the managers can do is to create a knowledge network 
and to be a facilitator of joining needs to knowledge. And this is can be done through online, um, uh, online management systems, through facilitating it personally, but to create this open environment for knowledge sharing was one of the key things that we saw. Uh, there's there's two others we list in, in our paper that we've gone through. Hila, do you wanna take one? I can go into the next one. Oh, go, go ahead. So the next one we saw was the the physical play space. Just being in a maker space or a hacker space just has this physical environment that's so invigorating. And what we saw, especially at the makeathons, but also at the hackathons, especially those that used uh, virtual reality or more hands-on um, technologies like the open source Arduino and Raspberry Pi, that they're using these tools and technologies in highly experimental ways that free their minds to be creative and to try new things. And a lot of times when they were iterating on the 3D printers, for example, they would stumble upon some solution that they didn't anticipate beforehand. And so having these digital and technological play spaces was a way that the organizers, again, set the stage. They provided all of these technologies, but they weren't guiding them or teaching them exactly how to use them. Sometimes they gave um, a quick tutorial, but mostly it was just free for all. Just use it when you need it and don't if you don't need it. And so we tried to think of how does this translate to a, a traditional organization and how can managers learn? And we envision these um, workspaces that are experiment play zones where creative workers can escape from their daily routines and they go through the same motions and sit at their computer and go through their meetings. This is a separate space where um, creative thinking and experimentation can really unfold without being under the view of their colleagues, their managers. It's just a place to think freely and experiment. Sandbox. Yeah, a sandbox and just having these tools and you know technologies that break out of their normal way of thinking in this sandbox kind of environment. So interesting thing I will add to that that now when we're moving to remote so in our kind of animated video that I can send you the link afterwards too we try to think okay how do we make help managers do it now since they're managing teams remotely they have less control and the work environment is so boring right so we suggest a few ways there like sending VR sets even like small gizmos or even telling people when they're working like bring your like you know toys and other stuff to your work environment show us your work environment like not to make it so sterile because one of the things that help creativity is to get all this stimulation yeah. and we are human beings we get stimulated by our physical environment and sometimes we forget to notice that our physical environment can be very mundane very boring the same one so how can we get stimulated beyond like you know the stuff we read online so that part is about thinking about the physical stimulation that we need for the creative juices to flow uh, so, and then we have the third best strategy that we saw, uh, which is kind of we have these three strategies that we recommend, which is around uh, feedback. And uh, what we saw that we know from the literature and from many uh, studies of innovation, that it's very scary to get feedback. Yeah. So what happens on your new idea, right? People are so excited. So we have all these pitches and entrepreneurs are trying. 
to do all these pitches and then they get and today there's the fashion of finding you know all those tv shows and like hammering the candidate and saying oh this is wrong this is wrong and unlike that in hackathons we found that the hackathon organizers do not give feedback but so what do they do about it so how come so are they fully avoiding it no so what we found that they're setting the stage for the team to do early and good peer-to-peer feedback. Yeah. So they set questions that are very helpful. Would this be feasible? What do you need for that? Kind of time to market. All those questions that are important, but do not supply the, the criticism or the feedbacks themselves. They let each other, the team, do it themselves. And that's much better. And that's something that we think <laughs> managers can also embrace in regular organizations, right? We don't need the managers so, to always intervene in such an early stage. If we give the questions, the guided questions to the team, and we have these check-ins, they can do it in the right uh, structure, with the right culture, of course, of constructive feedback themselves. So these are kind of the, be- the three strategies that we recommend, and that is it. It's much easier to do today with remote, to give the feedback, yeah. right? Because you can get feedback so easily, and you can just do work together and share documents. And so that's actually something that we think is, can easily be adapted from hackathons today. So immediate questions that came to mind especially when looking at the demographics of your study i believe it was 30 percent women in the particular over the particular series of hackathons you were studying and mostly software engineers i can't remember the exact statistic maybe about 30 percent and business was maybe 15 percent and then all the different fields fell fell under that When talking about autonomy and control and setting the stage, what I have found at hackathons, if you just leave, if you just leave people to form their own teams, they usually form their own teams with people that are just like them, which is maybe not best for innovation. What are the insights you found about facilitating maybe, I, I want to say unnatural collaboration, but unnatural probably isn't the right word. But facilitating collaboration with people with varying experiences to yourself. Yes, that's a great question, and I actually have have heard a lot about that as well in the online hackathons now through COVID. Because that's the the fear is that we have this homophily, which is the tendency to connect to people that are similar to us, which yeah. contradicts what we want exactly. As you said, for creativity and innovation, we want cognitive diversity. We want yeah. people that think differently. And usually demographic diversity, professional diversity, socioeconomic diversity comes with this cognitive diversity. So how do we get that without really interfering? As we said, we don't want to micromanage the process. So again, the main principle is to think about setting the stage. So think about the, the hackathon organizer or the team manager as a theater director instead of a movie director that is kind of saying exactly what to do. Think about them as a theater director. So a theater director has instructions, right? Like before. So one of the instructions and the guidelines that could be is to have diverse teams, is that we want different perspectives, different professionals as much as you can. So I think it, it, we do not need to let it be kind of fully natural, self-select, do whatever you want, because then we will, ha- we will have the same problems we see in our society. Yeah. We need to do these small nudges to give guidelines, to set the norms, to say, this is what we expect. We expect diverse team with high collaborative norms, with respectful communication, with constructive feedback. And it's amazing to see that if you just write it down on a big board, people do try to do it. 
people want to uh, align with the norms of a new place. And if you don't write anything, then they do regress to their natural tendencies, whichever they are. They could be too much, you know, on one hand or to the other. They could, like, we had also teams that some people took over, that you have people that are just taking over the whole team and are telling everyone what to do. So we also can have a guideline of saying, there's no one leader to the team. Yeah. You know, this is a collaborative work <laughs> and that's important. So if someone feels, wait a minute, like you can't tell us what to do, like, you know, so they have something to refer to. So, so that's the importance of setting the stage, having all these rules before and then people know how to play. So what are your thoughts on, so take, take, I'm in the UK now and, and much, I would say much of the world, but a lot of parts of the world are now pushing for gender diversity and ethnic diversity kind of quotas that's a similar thing to set in the rules right but there's a difference between saying you have to have in a team of five you have to have at least two women and actually making the women feel like they are part of the team yeah. and belong to be yeah. like and they deserve to be there they can contribute there's a difference so what are your insights on not just having people there but making them feel welcome and i said i said gender and ethnicity but it could be you know it could be profession someone might have been in finance and it could be a highly highly technical technical hackathon how do we make that person that's been in finance feel like they can contribute to something that's we have it in one of my teams one person was kind of disregarded people like disregarded their opinion just because she came from marketing and not from engineering and they kind of said you know and it was hard for her. She had yeah. to like show that she had the skill set. So it is a great question. So it could be professional, it could be gender, it could be color, ethnicity, yeah. it could be accent. Yeah. Even like yeah. the way people talk, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like according to their accent, if they're there are different accents, sometimes you feel that the person with the most whichever accent is kind of getting yeah. kind of more voice. So we talk about it in in academia about voice and voice distribution. And I think that's something really awesome that engineers and uh, hardware people and software people can actually connect to because it's something that can be translated to quantitative measures. So think about measuring the voice of people in the team, text analysis of it. What's the percentage? What's the distribution? So I usually think about it kind of that this really helps and I think about it this way and I tell people just make, think about the voice distribution. That's enough to tell. I don't need to tell them, make sure this person, that color, that gender, this sexual tendency, like, I think that's too intrusive to a hackathon environment. It's very different if we're talking about, you know, academia, students, like work settings that are, that people do not volunteer, but work there. Hackathons are volunteer based. So we still have to respect the ethos of freedom and respecting the volunteers and not telling them what to do. On the other hand, to set the norm that they should be equally distributed you know voice in the teams mm -hmm. once you put it as a norm and then here and there the organizers the team members themselves say by the way let's do a process check so in most hackathons that we saw once a day every half a day they do a process check yeah. so there is the content how are we going are we getting to the product but then there is the process how are we doing on process is everyone feeling okay the vision of labor everyone is doing the best that they feel they can do we need any supplies what about voice distribution? Mm -hmm. Do we feel everyone is getting heard? Anyone that has an opinion that is different from what we were doing? So I think once you put it on the checklist, people do want to make sure it works good. The problem is when you don't put it, when it's this implicit, passive thing, kind of underneath, and no one wants to talk about it because 
whoever is in the majority feels bad because they're, they're in the majority and they're not gonna, you know, who's ever in the minority feels bad because they don't want to stick themselves out because they're a minority. So like, everyone feels bad, but once it's out there in a very clear, objective way, then I think no hard feelings, like that's how we do, how are we doing? And then someone usually says, I think we're good. And if it's really wrong, then another person will say, seriously, I really don't think you're half of this group. What are you talking about? You've been talking the whole time. Yeah. And if it's like, so, so that creates the conversation that needs to happen, but people like usually kind of put it under the rug. So I yeah. think having those norms clearly stated and checked in, in the checklist of the process check-in. Why you specifically selected the kind of assistive technology, more like healthcare kind of theme? Because when I immediately think about certain hackathons I go to in certain areas when you're looking at process, I think healthcare, financial technology, there's some industries that in reality that are highly regulated, which strongly influences the process in a hackathon space or even a corporate space, public space. Why was assistive technology really interesting to, to you guys? Yeah, well, when we started the project, we really were looking across the board at a lot of industries, a lot of these cross sections you listed. Every hackathon that we had like nearby or even like across yeah. the state. Yeah, we were, we're going like, to. Just want to what hackathons are. Yeah, so we, we were going all kinds of hackathons for one oh, year. Breast cancer and awareness, health yeah. tech, uh, fintech, blockchain, yeah. um, all sorts of, yeah, for, for over a year. And we were trying to analyze these processes side by side and it was very difficult to do so because yeah. they're very different and they're also unique and the products that they were creating were very different hard to compare we focused on this first assistive technology and then the second one and what was beautiful as a researcher as someone who's trying to follow this process in detail and unpack every interaction and how the product evolved over those three days mm -hmm was they were building real physical devices. And what was the big advantage versus a, a traditional hackathon where all of the workflow and all of the product development was happening digitally okay. was we could see as researchers yeah. um, the specific activities that were leading to the product, when it veered, when they did a loop, when they iterated, when there was redundant work, when there was conflict, it was all really playing out in front of our eyes. And so this physical aspect of, of the assistive technology was huge. And seeing at the very end, this physical product, did it work or did it not work, made a really clear outcome variable that we could uh, build our study around. And as we were thinking about where this generalizes or how to think about um, this work, or, you know, how, what we learned about the process in other contexts, one thing that really stood out to us was the importance of having a visible workflow. And so when, when one of the things that we really thought was, was special in the secret sauce of the teams that succeeded was their ability to observe what each other was doing and quickly react and adapt and change their own work based on what they saw one another doing. Mm -hmm. They didn't have these long drawn out discussions where they were measuring things and doing detailed planning and then they you know take that plan and apply it to their own work 
they were quickly seeing and adapting to what one another was doing across the table or across the room. And that was because they could see the work. The 3D printer finished, they had this device, it had three prongs. They were developing something that applied to two prongs. So all of a sudden they noticed this discrepancy. Mm -hmm. They started updating their own design to have three prongs. And so when we think about a, vi a visible workflow in contexts of mostly digital or remote work, there are ways that we can make our work more visible to one another, even uh, working remotely. So putting on the camera, having this visible face-to-face -face contact, using shared drives and shared documents and working in a live environment or, you know, regularly uploading your code to, to the shared uh, code depository repository. These are the things that can help make a workflow visible that can take mm -hmm. this physical best practice into the digital world. So Sarah, um, but that I, was why we picked the, the, the assistive technology. <laughs> it was really a, a, a very unique and uh, great experience as a researcher. So I would also ask, uh, some of your research now is on machine learning, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. so I would ask, do you believe this kind of impro like improvisation of the kind of development process is what may set us apart from, you know, where companies are trying to automate using machines? Now, the human advantage is our ability to really improvise, especially when in relation to other people. Do you think this will be our advantage going forward 10, 20, 50 years? I know, I know that's a big as question. If to ask. As if there's only one advantage we <laughs> offer <laughs> as humans. No, I, I think you make a There are two. It's, there are it, only two. There's there only two. two. <laughs> Social and creativity. No, I'm joking. But, yeah, there are not many. No, I'm joking. Yeah. But, uh, no, but it's true. Well, so we, we study specifically AI in the context of, uh, sorry, one second, of radiology. These are doctors who are looking at medical imaging to make diagnoses. And one of the things that, that you're saying that's so, it, it resonates really strongly is that the, the machine learning is trained to identify a very narrow set of diseases yeah. and a very specific appearance of those diseases. Yeah. And so um, when the physician looks at the x-ray, they're factoring in hundreds of variables, thinking about the patient that they just talked to, you know, so many other images that they're factoring in. And the, the machine learning is really good at making a very specific prediction, but doesn't incorporate all of these other uh, variables that the, uh, you know, the practitioner is reflecting on in their process. And so that is, I, can, I think, kind of getting at this improvisation yeah. That you're speaking to but we think about it in the terms of covid like at the in the early days you know there was a certain understanding of how the disease was forming and so certain companies were trying to build machine learning models to detect it in x-rays and ct scans but then our understanding of the disease and the virus itself evolved yeah. and so now these earlier models were no longer as up to date, or they weren't encompassing the same range of information that the that us as humans who are more able to adapt in real time and integrate more variables was they're able to make these diagnoses with with more accuracy. There's a place for both, certainly, yeah. but there is a, a certain element that the humans are bringing still. Mm -hmm. So I would also ask both of you, um, when we think about hackathons, it's more like a 
like you just said, it's more like a horizontal structure. No one is really the leader, even though, you know, just with personalities, leaders will naturally emerge. But there is no, there is no di dictated authority. When we spoke about healthcare and diagnosis, there are dictated authorities. So even though you have this pool of knowledge and information, really, just like in many corporate environments, you're not really tapping into that. Is, is that what you're seeing in healthcare? Just with the hierarchy or decision-making, maybe, I don't know, maybe one of the interns sees something and, and I, on social media, I've seen this, the interns are seeing stuff, but the, the people at the top are saying, no, with our experience, with our knowledge, obviously they take the liability. We think right. it's like this. Right. It's a, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I, I think healthcare in particular is really dredged in these um, training and expert, you know, expert based, yeah. it's an expert based practice. And so as they accumulate more years of experience and more accreditation, they've seen broader range of things and how they've played out. It is deferred, you know, the opinions are deferred ultimately. And like you said, those experts are the ones who are having liability for the decision. Yeah. So the interns wouldn't necessarily want the responsibility, but they have processes built in mm -hmm. that take that initial input and then it is sent, you know, for a second review of the of the more senior doctor. So I think there are processes built in. They're not perfect, but I think one thing that we can think about more broadly and that kind of gets at the hackathon mindset is the crowdsourcing and Hila, maybe you jump in around crowdsourcing around um, not maybe not for a specific case, but even for training these the, the artificial intelligence systems or some ways of uh, utilizing a wider range and a huger pool of of opinions and perspectives to form uh, the the judgments that can make an impact in the future. So maybe that's getting a little closer, yeah. and that's one area of opportunity. <laughs> and yeah. do you think because uh, just thinking about crowdsourcing, I guess we're moving that way, right? The whole blockchain movement, at least from technology, uh, technologists, is more about democracy and like distributing authority and decision making. The whole movements with open source is more about, again, democracy and distributing control and not having, you know, Apple or Microsoft or whatever company have control of my hardware. It could be my my heart monitor, it could be, you know, my car, you see Tesla open sourcing a lot of their patents. And yeah, do, so do you think this is going to be, you know, we're moving that way? Is it feasible to move, for us I to hope, move that way? I hope so, but I, <laughs> I, I hope so, but we need to be realistic about the different forces. So technology is technology. It's designed mm -hmm. by people, for people. Uh, and we need to remember that it does not have its own values. So it enables things that we cannot, we couldn't do before. It enables the democratization of knowledge. It enabled dismantling knowledge boundaries, right? Before that, you had, you only knew what you knew. You couldn't get to know my research, right? Yeah. You couldn't even read my research. No. Like if we didn't know each other in I didn't send you, you were not, were not even able. So the internet has changed, it's crowdsourcing has changed the ability of people to solve other companies' problems and to join hackathons. But we have to remember, and that's a big but, the technologies over the history of technology development 
we're always on the swing of the democratization and power of the elites. So always when there was a new technology, bike, the cars, you know, like yeah. planes, whenever there was a new technology that came by, people said, oh, now people will be able to move to other places. Oh, now we will be able to enable more equality. But then there were forces that pushed you to the other extreme as well. Now we have more control. We thought we'll have more privacy and democracy. Actually, now we have less of it. We thought we'll have more diversity of knowledge and distribution of knowledge. Now we are learning that the media, for instance, is really controlled and we're getting kind of yeah. many things that are not necessarily true. So I would warrant against uh, assuming that technology will solve our problems. I encourage every, each of us and kind of, of course, the people who are studying it or organizing it, to try to think how we're designing the technology, how we're giving choice in the design of the technology for individuals to choose how much control they want, how much privacy they want, how much ownership of their data they want. Today, the technologies are purposefully sometimes not designed for this full freedom and full choice. So I would say we're not there yet at all, and we still need to be careful and guard our uh, democratic uh, rights and to make sure the technologies are designed with them in mind and to demand that as users, as, as consumers, as designers. And that yeah. was that leads into my next question. Who is responsible for that? Is it the initial, you know, when you look at Facebook and what it was now, I doubt Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of the team were sitting there thinking about what it would mean for democracy and really setting their values from the beginning or even the beginning years. Is it on the founders of people that, you know, someone might start a hackathon project and it could be used for bad, but they haven't set no values in, so chances are someone, somewhere, will use it for bad. Or is it on the consumers to really push that social conversation? Is it on the regulators? Who exactly is responsible for, I want to say, the values that we're putting in technology or how technology is being used? Yeah, so to begin with, I think there is no one that is not responsible. We are all responsible. We are responsible as consumers. I teach my kids that when they consume, they vote. Mm -hmm. So they consume a product that is doing something that we do not believe in, it's, we are voting that that's okay. Yeah. So not always we have a choice, right? Sometimes when we consume, we only have, you know, so let's talk about emails, right? Or stuff like sometimes we only have a choice between two, two companies. So it's not that we have a choice, but whatever we do have a choice. So as consumers, we have a choice to begin with. Companies for sure. It's been too long that we have decoupled kind of financial incentives from corporate social responsibility. And now many companies are understanding that they can no longer keep those two apart. And if they cannot just think about money and the market is starting to analyze it and understand it, but still they're under tremendous pressure mm -hmm. from the financial market to only show profit. So until we find a better way to measure their social impact that is as important as profit is, we, we are telling two different things to managers and founders. So you're right that we're expecting them both simultaneously to show financial profit and to squeeze everything they can from the consumers, but to guard our rights, that's not a realistic expectation. And then there comes the, the regulation, the role of regulation. And that's where we have a big problem because we've seen it this year, right? Yeah. The, the regulation and the people in, in DC are not yet aligned with what's happening with companies. So on this, there are different opinions. My personal opinion is that we have to have more alignment and more conversation between policy and companies, especially those that are big. But this is because I come from an antitrust background. So I think they have monopolistic power. We need to intervene. But I have, you know, 
other colleagues that are more on the yeah. kind of liberal side and believe that we do not need to intervene and the market will do what it wants to do. I think it's a bit too concentrated right now. Uh, the big five, the big six, however we measure them, our hands are kind of, if you just think about the big companies that are controlling and if I also count uh, Alibaba and the Chinese ones. Okay. So I really think if you just look at them, they are concentrating immense amounts of power which are not okay, like no one asked us as you said, like as a consumer, some things we can choose, but some things we do not choose, like, mm -hmm. and our data is not owned by us right now. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to think about it from a regulatory perspective much more. And so to, and so to coming, to coming back to still staying on uh, policy and antitrust, but coming back to the kind of the philosophies of hackathons and accelerated in innovation. My theory is that Governments, I don't think there is a single government on earth that can keep up with the private companies because of their dis the way they make decisions as an organizational structure in most democracies, you're not going to be able to keep up with Google. You're not going to be able to keep up with Facebook. By the time you, you decide on a regulatory decision, Facebook have changed what they want to do. So do you believe this kind of hackathon philosophy or a lot of the traits of hackathons could be used in government decision-making or at least governments and how we come up with new policies or amend old policies? That's a great question and a very bold one. So you're suggesting that the governments and the most bureaucratic organizations on earth will <laughs> learn from kind of, I'm joking, right? I'm exaggerating, I get to work for government. Uh, but will learn from kind of the most nimble, agile, kind of on the edge of the other extreme. And I think so. I think it is possible because there are young, smart, and even old, smart, agile people in the government. And I've seen that myself. I'm kind of in the in this National Academics of Science and Engineering Committee that the government actually wants to learn about crowdsourcing and wants to implement and has been implemented. Yeah. So my own work with NASA and they are not, you know, a young organization. They are large, they are bureaucratic, but they are embracing crowdsourcing. Mm -hmm. And there are many other agencies. We're now talking to the NIH, to the NSF. I talked last week with the Department of Defense and the, the US military. And they now for COVID, for instance, they did a hackathon and a challenge yeah. and a crowdsourcing and they moved really fast. They, they cut a, a year long process mm -hmm. of working with the military, usually that it takes from kind of showing and procurement. They cut it to two months. So they are able to do it. Uh, they just need the, the guidance and the, the, the learning about the process. But there is willingness. And when there is willingness, I think it is possible. So there's hope that laws that have been there for, at least in my country, 100, 150 years that are outdated can be changed like that with hackathons. Not laws, not laws, <laughs> not but procedures, laws. processes. Okay. Laws, that's a whole different story. <laughs> but, but procedures, processes, yeah. procurement process, for instance, mm -hmm. which takes so long, is innovation process, right? So these processes can be expedited, can be accelerated, can mm -hmm. be changed, can be broken. They are not binded by law. They are, mm -hmm. They've been there because of bureaucratic reasons for years. Yeah. And so there was another thing that was interesting that I found about the research, uh, the research papers that you, some of them that you published was, I believe the assistive technology hackathons that were being researched, there was no prize for the competitions. Is that, was that all of them? Sarah, do you want to take that one? The two that we studied did not provide cash prizes or 
any monet, you know, uh, kind of status or any yeah. any uh, opportunities, any access to accelerators or anything like that that we've seen in other ones. I think more than anything, the participants were motivated by their desire to help and their passion for um, bettering the lives of others. Mm -hmm. And so in this, in these cases specifically, the organizers partnered with local um, community based programs that had individuals with certain uh, challenges in life, some different, you know, disabilities, physical and otherwise. And they procured, you know, these collection of individuals who needed some urgent help of some kind in their life. And so in many of the cases, the, these individuals who were selected were present and they showed up and they met the teams. And there was this one young boy who was six or seven years old in a wheelchair whose whole family showed up and the, the task, the need that they proposed at the hackathon was two things. They had two challenges. One was um, that the, the young child wanted more independence. They, he wanted to be able to reach things off of shelves. And so the, the team was trying to build some mobile shelves that would lift on his command, either by voice or by a remote on his wheelchair. And then the other was to help him use a voice activated elevator in the house and just meeting him. You wanted to, to, to see him happy. You wanted to help him. So there were no prizes. Uh, it was really a, a motivated by their desire to help. In the other hackathons we studied, there were more prizes. And this is a, you know, an incentive that's built into a lot of these structures. And I think there's a place for it. And it also, you know, changes the dynamics of the team sometimes and gives some, um, I know one team I was on, they just came to this hackathon because of the prize. It attracted a certain yeah. different tier of talent and, and they were really motivated to satisfy the judges criteria. And maybe they weren't thinking long-term about the product, but they were singularly minded on winning and they did, they were yeah. hackathon experts. They, yeah. they were serial ex experts yeah. on this and, and they knew the formula that the judges yep. were looking for. And they, but they turned out that they continued to work on this product afterwards and, and tried to make a go of it. So I don't think there's a writer, you know, there's not one answer to how to do these things, but I, I think it does best when there's some combination of intrinsic motivation and maybe some external driver as well. But mm -hmm. in our cases, they performed really highly just with the intrinsic desire to help. I definitely ask that question because it comes back to motivation, right? And I, I definitely feel that uh, hackathons, some hackathons, if you limit, maybe limit is not the right word, but if there, if there is no monetary prize, you might have excellent business minds or developers or subject matter experts that are motivated by money that don't come because that motivation isn't there for them. But then again, you also might have people that are not motivated by money and motivated by social change or impact. And it's perfect for them, but then you also don't have the balance. And then I also think about that on the corporate side. You know, I think, so I'm, so I'm 26 and I think things are starting to change. Maybe, and, and maybe you guys will know better than I do, but maybe 40 years ago, it was more money economic motivated and you know the i guess the internet and how things progress i think the 
consensus with people going through school now and people going into university is starting to change on why they want to work on projects and for companies. Do you think this there's a correlation between what we're seeing in hackathons and what's going on in corporate in terms of motivation? It's a great question. I mean, it's, it's complicated. We are especially now in a very sensitive time because yeah. people are in need for, for jobs, for money. And on the other hand, they have strong willingness and strong motivation to help. So my answer is these things can coexist. And that's what we've been seeing in the literature. It doesn't have to be either or. The old way of thinking in the literature was that intrinsic motivation, kind of wanting to help and the things that we shared with you, move out extrinsic motivation. So meaning if you can either have this like nice willingness or money. Yeah. But today we understand that they can actually go hand in hand. And sometimes when you want to help, it also helps your CV and that's okay. So it doesn't have to be money, but it helps your CV. It helps you get a job. It helps you talk about something interesting that you did. They're not fully uh, separated. Uh, sometimes they do crowd each other. So I would say on the extremes, they do. If someone wants to do something purely for good, do something really for a huge price, then they do uh, conflict. But I do think we need to think about offering both to different extents, not just one or the other. And extrinsic doesn't have to be money. It can also be something that you can put on your CV, yeah. a, a way to network with mentors, a way to met, mentor with potential uh, kind of job applications, processes. So there are other ways. And we've seen it in open source. Initially, it was all just for goodwill. Now people are working yeah. for companies, doing open source in the companies. Who would believe that a decade ago, right? Yeah. So like new things get created when you don't restrict yourself too much and thinking it has to be this way or the other. And have the hackathons you've researched analyzed what their participants' motivations are and ask them what do they want? When we talk about facilitating the stage, have they... Because obviously some of them, you know, try and connect people with their sponsors. Their sponsors could be, I don't know, let's just say Google for the sake of saying Google. And they try and help connect them, get them jobs. Some of them, you know, try and do workshop for skills. But have you found organizers really actively asking their participants, well, what do you want to get out of this? So they do ask and we've asked um since there's been so much written on the motivation, uh, we, we have not done a specific study on that, but I can tell you that it definitely corresponds with what we've seen in the literature of this mixed motivation. Mm -hmm. the, number thing, the number one thing that we saw in hackathons that is not so prevalent in other ways of participating is learning. So like everyone that we talked to talked about how they, they want to help, they want to build, they want to do this thing, but they also want to learn, they want to grow, they want to develop as individuals, as professionals, they want this new experience. So I think that was really dominant. Right, Sarah, is there anything else that you felt from the participants? I'd say that really stands out, um, whether it's to really like, um, they, they're attracted to certain fields because they want to learn about health tech or fintech, and that is like an industry that maybe they're a software developer and they want to break into this new industry. So maybe exposure to the issues and the dialogue and mm -hmm. the specific skills that are used in that domain, but then also drawn to specific uh, technology-based challenges like using IBM's um, 
deep, you know, they have, what is it, the deep blue, they have this um, package online that they can use. Uh, and when they see certain technologies advertised or a virtual reality, so one was sponsored by the Google Glasses. And so they, certain many participants showed up specifically to get exposure with that platform and working with and building APIs on top of it. So, um, and then, I, so I think that's part of it. And then when it comes to specific groups of, of as looking at the students in particular as a cohort that join hackathons, I think the opportunities that recruiters might provide yeah. was was significant in some in some settings, not so much in others. But when there was a a push that says, okay. Um, uh, PNG is we're going to have a, a huge presence of mentors. It's PNG, and they're going to come. They're they're hiring, so this is part of the advertising that yeah. attracts a lot of the students. They know PNG is coming because they want to hire. The students are coming because they want jobs. It's really just becomes a recruiting mechanism, but that is the minority. I think the the learning, and then just to have fun and to feel like they're doing something good for the community is is a unique, you know. Yeah, I think it's great, by the way, for companies to use this. That's why I said it doesn't have to be one or the other. Like, hackathon teams are, and, and there are teams that go together also from one hackathon to the other. That's unique, but there are people who go from hackathons and also like couples or pairs that work together. And I think they bring a, a unique skill set to an organization. So using that to recruit, to screen, to look at people, why not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there any final components of your research that I've missed out and just covering my notes. I don't, I'm not sure. That's a great question. So one thing that I wanted us to talk about, uh, it is the minimal and adaptive coordination. Okay. So I wanted to share, that's kind of the way of coordinating for teams that we found that really enabled those teams that were able to build a working product uh, within you know, the hackathon timeframe, which is extremely limited, kind of 72 hours versus those that did not. So maybe I'll tell you a little bit and then Sarah can add. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. So basically in our study, we compared uh, 13 teams and really kind of, we were in each of those teams, me, Sarah, or Zamanovich, who's a co-author on this paper and other research associates and assistants. And we looked at what they were doing and how they were working. And Initially, it looked like everyone is doing great. After a while, it looked that some teams are really messy and starting to work without knowing what they're doing and others were really well organized. And by the end of the hackathons, what we found surprisingly that actually is those well-organized teams fail in the sense that they were not able to produce a working prototype. They got into all kinds of technical issues and they did not and we're not able to change in time and to adapt to the challenges and to kind of replan. Um, and then we try to understand what did this messy, seem to be messy kind of teams did. And uh, so we've studied that and we've named it minimal and adaptive coordination. By minimal, we mean that they only start with a very rough outline of what they're going to do. So when we think about coordination, we mean two things, kind of what are we going to do and how we're going to get there. So what are we going to do? Only minimal. Just a rough outline. This is how the product should look like. This is how the solution should look like. Versus the well-organized team that did full coordination, they really said these are the specific measurements and the specific methods and materials we would use and spend time investigating those. The minimal teams just agreed about it. 
and in less than an hour jump to start to work and start experimenting. So they did this hyper experimentation and learned a lot and failed a lot and learned a lot. The second thing is how we're going to get there. So the full coordination team, those that did the best practices, said, you're going to do that, I'm going to do this, did a nice division of labor and clear. The messy teams hardly talked about who's doing what. A lot of redundancy is a mess, but over time, because they looked at each other and we had this visible workflow that we talked about, they adjusted to each other quickly without long discussions and tiring arguments. They saw that the other person is doing something like, do you think this would fit that? I need to change the material. Okay, I'm changing. So they kind of quickly adjust, and we talked about these swift adjustments to each other, and that's the adaptive part. So it started very messy and very chaotic and daunting, but in the end, they were well-synchronized. Versus the well-organized team that started very organized, but if there was an illusion of everything is going to work out, and this is what we should do. And then that illusion broke at some point, and then it became very messy because it was too late, because they spent a lot of time going into that one direction. It was hard for them to adopt versus the, the messier teams, the minimal and, and adaptive coordination, because they only agreed on a minimal level, it was easy for them to adapt and to change it. Yeah. That is a very good point about the, the two types of teams, the teams that kind of start off, no clue what they're doing, maybe not even until the last couple hours of the hackathon, and the okay, team yeah. that start with the plan, and usually yeah. it just falls apart and they can't recover. Yeah, I'll just say like quickly was that I'm sure you've had this experience where when you're when you just meet your team for the first time, your natural instinct is to work together and to just get on the same page and to flesh everything out. It, it You have so much uncertainty in front of you. And there's sometimes it's a problem you've never even heard of before this COVID we, we did a COVID in Africa. And it was a very specific community based challenge that we were trying to face so there's a lot of uncertainty and so the natural desire of teams who've just met is to communicate and discuss and debate and decide together in a cohesive with a lot of um consensus and th this is the natural instinct and so as we've been talking to hackathon organizers and giving presentation just at the beginning of a hackathon we're basically giving them permission to just be uncomfortable yeah. it's going to be uncomfortable and your team is going to feel like it's flailing for a while and that's okay and you may want perfectionism but put that aside you know just embrace this uncertainty embrace all of the chaos for as long as you can hold off and then eventually you'll start to build this uh, this this product together by adaptively responding to one another and it's really letting go of that initial desire and embracing the uncertainty, which we found to be the most effective. And giving people the permission to do that is somewhat freeing, and you can just yeah. go about the process in this autonomous and creative way so that I'd, really works. I'd also ask, that's very unique to our society, whether in the UK or whether in the US or most countries in the world. Like, giving people permission to be uncomfortable and not know and not feel they have to, you know, draw the lines and add structure to everything. Do you feel that mentality and philosophy should maybe be taught as alongside our traditional education systems? Because obviously the structures are important, but also the not needing to have structures is important too. It's a good point. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our society is built around structure 
and we require a, or you know we've we've baked in a lot of layers of structure in order to achieve what we feel is is a is you know an optimal society and i think there are bubbles that have have space in society that do embrace this freer thinking and i think in the classroom i know at university we are you know working to build in this uh more independent type of learning and exploration and i think it is it is trying to be integrated you know there is there are efforts that are integrating this today but because we live in a society that depends on structure and that ultimately we're trying to produce students who are going to become workers who will fit into you know a very yeah. clean idea of what society should look like whether that's right or wrong it it creates a lot of structure and it is hard to find the bubbles but i think that's why people are so drawn to hackathons right yeah. is because you can go and just and just break break away and that maybe one of the drivers and they're trying to find some of these ways to bring these practices into organizations and into bureaucracy and government and, and education but it's it's difficult there's a lot of forces pushing against it as, as well developers 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 Developers, developers, developers.